I'm Aaron Sagers, and this is Talking Strange. Aloha, spooky nerds, and welcome to Talking Strange, a paranormal pop culture show with the Den of Geek Network. I am your host, journalist, author, researcher of all things weird, Aaron Sagers. I also appear on the Travel Channel and Discovery Plus show, Paranormal Caught on Camera, and I'm the host of the new series, 28 Days Haunted, on Netflix. Hope you check those out. Quite proud of those. But let me tell you a little bit about my guest today. He's a gentleman that I've actually been trying to uh, pin down for a while to chat with because I am, uh, I, I really respect his work. And he's definitely, if you're going to talk about this topic, he is one of the guys that you definitely need to talk about, one of the people you need to talk about. And he is a full professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University since 1993. And his research centers on the evolution of hominin bipedalism. Now, he is has a lab that has more than 300 footprint casts attributed to relict hominoids around the world. He conducts collaborative laboratory and field research throughout the world and of course when i say relic hominoids and reference hominin by pedalism i'm of course colloquially referring to sasquatch to bigfoot and in fact he is the author of sasquatch legend meets science which explores the contemporary scientific evidence for the reality of this legendary species and also affords deference to tribal people's traditional knowledge of this subject. And in addition to all that, he has published two field guides, one focusing on Sasquatch, the second casting the net more broadly to consider the potential of relic hominid species around the world. And he is editor-in-chief of the scholarly referee journal, The Relic Hominoid Inquiry, which is in its 11th year. And oddly enough, we're talking pretty much two days shy of the anniversary 55th anniversary of the filming of the Patterson Gimlin footage, which took place on October 20th, 1967. So here he is, Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Hey, Dr. Meldrum, Hi. Jeff, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. I'm, I'm <laughs> quite excited to chat with you today and we've got a lot of things that I want to, I want to go through, but actually just something that as I was saying it, I wanted to get your definition of what this means because you explore the contemporary scientific evidence for the reality of Sasquatch, but you also afford deference to tribal people's traditional knowledge of this subject. That's a very specific wording. I like that. And I, I kind of want you to break that down a little bit more and define what you mean by contemporary scientific evidence and also the deference to tribal people's traditional knowledge. Well, sure. Well, it was always annoying when the skeptics would uh, would tout that Bigfoot was born in in the late 1950s when these uh, yokels were trotting out carved wooden feet, stomping footprints in the in the logging roads, as if um, as if nothing had happened prior to that, as if there was no trace of relic hominoids or wild men or you know whatever local names the boogers the 
the monsters, the devils, the mountain devils, all these different uh, terms that seem to apply to this same entity as if, as if all that uh, never existed. And so <clears throat> the appreciation and understanding of the tribal perspective has always been a bit elusive itself because of the very guarded nature of these uh, traditions and rituals and costumes and dances and so forth. <clears throat> and um, so uh, when I was writing Sasquatch Legend Meets Science, the uh, publisher uh, that I was working with um, commented on the lack of any representation and suggested it would really be great if we could add a chapter uh, beyond the outline that had been followed for the documentary, add a chapter that addressed the Native American traditions and, um, and uh, uh, knowledge, uh, perspective, point of view, however you want to describe it. And uh, so I began, I, I had some material that I had um, accumulated just through direct interaction with, with uh, local tribal members. I, we live uh, very close to the Fort Hall Reservation. And um, so representation of the Shoshone and Bannock tribes there. I, I worked close, I worked closely with uh, an investigator, uh, John Mianzinski, who has very close ties with the Eastern Shoshone, the Wind River Reservation and, and other examples. And so I, I frequently interacted as well with students that uh, were from the reservation and that were taking classes who would share their insights. And, um, and so I had a few things, but there, there really was no, this was what was, it became clear very quickly, there was no really systematic treatment of the topic across all the various tribal nations. And uh, because of the, uh, the, uh, um, the guarded nature, the reticence of, of, uh, of, of these communities to share this information with non-tribal communities. There was, however, a very good paper written by Gail Hypine, who uh, a, a tribal person herself who had access to and was afforded the opportunity to create kind of a synthesis across uh, quite a geographic range in, in the in North America, and it had it had. Uh, been disseminated in a couple of websites or this or that and I contacted Gail and she was very gracious in permitting us to reprint that piece in its entirety in Sasquatch Legend Meets Science. So that was a really significant uh, uh, contribution I think and, and um, things are slowly changing though. For example, I, I'm working on one of the projects that uh, is, is vying for my attention and I wish I could uh, devote more time to it in an uninterrupted fashion, but I'm co-authoring uh, a manuscript with a cultural anthropologist at the University of New Mexico at Gallup, who has very good ties with the Navajo Nation. And they are very willing to share their perspective and insights to a, to a serious investigator. and. We, in fact, the way I came in, in, uh, into uh, uh, connection with this uh, project was uh, Chris, um, that uh, the uh, anthropologist had invited me down 
he was at that time the executive director of the Gallup campus of the university and uh, had hosted a symposium on uh, uh, Sasquatch in, in the Southwest. And I was one of the invited speakers. There was a local investigator uh, who made a, a, a contribution as well. But the real highlight of the event, which was a gate buster, it was the most the, the, the most attended event that had ever been held on that university campus ever. We had to change the venue twice to accommodate the burgeoning crowd of which the vast majority were from the Navajo Nation. And the second day was entirely an open mic kind of talking circle setting, which once the ball got rolling for about four or five hours, it was nonstop sharing of personal anecdotes or uh, perspectives, tribal perspectives, interpretation of traditional uh, knowledge and so forth by tribal members. And that really kind of planted the seed, I thought, uh, because they were also all the, the audience agreed right up front to allow it to be um, audio taped. And, um, and so uh, we had all those, um, all those testimonials and, and stories and perspective. And I thought this would be the great a great kernel, a, a core for a treatment of this topic on a on a broader scale. And here we have, you know, a, a cultural anthropologist and a and a biologist in the in the broadest sense, and an anthrop a physical anthropologist. And so I I tackled the sort of biogeographic ecological side of it, and um, and Chris much more of the ethnographic side of it. So it's it's well underway. It's just we, you know, as all things happen, it uh, it seems that uh, life gets in the way, life and obligations here, and so um, uh, I'm I'm hoping that um, at the very least, come uh, spring, midsummer, we'll we'll wrap that project up because it's it's just fascinating. You know, you you think this is one of the things a theme that I think is really fascinating because it it so attests to the reality of this. Uh, species, as opposed to just being some paranormal phenomenon, it has an ecological basis. And so, as I'm as I'm breaking down the uh, the forest and the uh, forest types and and the natural resources that a large omnivorous primate would need to survive, you know, looking for parallels with the distribution of black bear, for example, in the area. Where are the montane forests? Because most people, you know, you think of the Southwest, the Four Corners, and what do you think of? You think of the desert. You think of saguaro cactus and and uh, red sandstone mesas and and hoodoos and and rim rock and so forth. You don't think about a, a forest uh, creature like this, but yet the habitat is there, and and it rings that Colorado plateau, the plateau itself, even though not densely forested is extremely rich with gamble oak and pinyon pine, which are tremendous carbohydrate sources, and uh, <clears throat> of which the, the bear are known to take full advantage of. In any, in any case, I, I happened to, in, in, as part of this project, um, uh, run into and establish a, a working relationship with a, a map maker, uh, the Bigfoot Mapping Project, and, and asked if uh, he had acquired numerous other data sets in addition to, you know, kind of the go-to, the BFRO.net uh, uh, maps. Right. And 
he prepared this this fantastic map of the of the four corners area and when you overlay that on my on my um ecological map that shows where the likely habitat would be the potential habitat uh, uh as correlated also with black bear habitat boom there's you know there's a 99 percent correlation yeah they just, they just fit they overlap tremendously Go ahead. I- uh, no, I just want to backtrack just a, a moment because um, when when you're talking about these tribal peoples, I mean it's it, even though the the approach that you're taking is very much looking at this as a physical species, the right. interesting intersect with intersection with with quote unquote the paranormal is a lot of people of color, indigenous peoples, the their stories have been co-opted and exploited by you know, white folks that go into those communities and then they take those stories and then they will, yeah, uh, use that to to paint those people in whatever unflattering way uh, they choose. And as a result, those communities, I think, understandably, might kind of close ranks and decide not to talk about these stories with outsiders. And then there's like a lot of repair work that has to be done. So we're kind of finally at this point you know, uh, more than half a century after this thing really started becoming part of the mainstream, we're finally at the point where you think the indigenous peoples are maybe a little bit more willing to buy into this research uh, on the academic level and work with you. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had very positive experiences and I hope through my, you know, serious and, uh, and um, calculated, uh, uh, I mean, in terms of objectivity and, and scientific rigor, treatment of the subject have I've garnered, I think, the respect of of the tribal peoples that I'm that I'm treating this res- with respect. And whenever, whenever the opportunity to interact has has arisen, have always shown deference to um, uh, the significance, the role. Uh, because there are, I mean, there are layers, you know, I, I was actually, uh, kind of challenged by, uh, I had an audience before the tribal council here on the Fort Hall reservation in connection with, uh, I was actually, I was seeking just a nod of approval and, uh, acknowledgement that I had treaded lightly in my treatment of the topic in this particular chapter. And, uh, and it was a very <laughs> soul-bearing uh, uh, and uh, searching uh, experience, I think, on both levels, on both sides of, of the, the there, was, there was certainly give and take. And, but, but there was this, um, at one point, the, the challenge, why are you doing this? And I tried to explain that that there isn't just one reason. I mean, I'm as an individual, I wear different hats, and so as a scientist, I am striving to further understand the natural world, to catalog the diversity of nature. You know, to understand on a personal level. You know, I've now I'm to the point where I've had these firsthand experiences that I want to better understand. Uh, you know, if there is more than just this, I mean, just, you know, as an anatomist, I study the human body. I study 
the machine that we occupy that uh, that uh, serves us throughout our life uh, that doesn't mean that there are all these other dimensions of humanity that my my preoccupation with um, uh, human anatomy um, fails to uh, to even touch and likewise when I'm focused as a physical anthropologist on the the supposed evolutionary history and adaptations and the form and function of the foot of the Sasquatch as I interpret all these casts, that doesn't mean that my perception of this being is limited to those physical parameters. I mean, there's all this other, this uh, the mystique of, a, of an unrecognized species, the one perhaps more closely related uh, to us than any other on the planet. And, uh, and what, to, you know, what kind of a mirror does that hold up to us? as as a species and and so on and so on i mean there's all kinds of philosophical aspects and so of course the native american perspective tends to obviously be heavily into that side that sort of uh, experiential and philosophical and and existential types of questions instead of the very proximate physical um, mechanical <clears throat> aspects of it but there is common ground, and I, and I have, in my interactions with uh, people from all kinds of backgrounds, uh, have, have found those common uh, points of, of interest that, uh, you know, I, one of the things, and, and to kind of turn it back around, uh, not, not to be judgmental at all, but, but the reality of it is that part of the motivation for the more open and reciprocal relationships with people like me is that the younger generation, many that come up and you know talk to me, they know more about Sasquatch based on their watching of cable television than they do sitting at the knee of their elders. And they're recognizing that they're they're you know they're going to lose that link in the chain of tradition. That cultural connection exactly. exactly if they don't take a more proactive role in uh, in the process and so uh, I mean it was quite interesting we just had a an event here in Pocatello that was organized by one of our local entrepreneurs and Sasquatch enthusiasts um, uh, who, who uh, uh, Brandon Tennant and um, at the very last minute I mean and he had tried he had tried to get given the proximity, get involvement and uh, participation, it, it kind of wax and wanes as, you know, as, as is always the case, depending on which personalities are, are, uh, are on the stage and are on the floor and involved as to how much communication. But um, at this particular point, there was no interest in participating from <clears throat> displayed from the tribe. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, this new individual who was a, a, a recent uh, arrival in this community. She'd been away at different, different, uh, different roles, different uh, uh, career paths that had taken her into. Uh, <clears throat> she was a Forest Service archaeologist, U.S. Forest Service archaeologist, and uh, she asked if she could participate and provide a perspective. So he quickly carved out of the schedule. Uh, uh, a slot for her to um, have the stage and uh, 
she was prepared with a slide presentation, everything gave a nice little presentation about her perspective and reiterated some of the same traditional stories that I've heard uh, over and over again. And But it was a great experience for the audience to see that uh, perspective and to realize that, um, and she was very deferential. I mean, obviously her education and her career path was was in a, um, a science, even though that science was indeed applied to her own history. And sometimes that creates tensions that, <laughs> yeah. that uh, I'm sure she's had to um, uh, negotiate or navigate rather, navigate um, hurdles and obstacles to her involvement. But it was a great, great experience. Well, yeah, that and that kind of brings up something I was wondering about is, so you were, uh, you, you've been with Idaho State University since 1993, and you're, it's not as if you came at this as someone that entered academia trying to look into Sasquatch. The, my understanding is that it was, what, 96 is when you first encountered these uh 15 inch tracks in the blue mountains in southeastern washington and this is what really sparked your interest now i correct me if i'm wrong but i'm but the question i really have about that is do you recall the first conversation you had with an academic right after that the sort of after you have this paradigm shift who that first kind of collegiate contact or conversation you had where you're like yeah you know what i i might be pursuing this thing now yeah well i yes i not uh, in, in in generalities i guess there were um thankfully there were a couple of colleagues in the department who who uh who were always very supportive uh and very you know good mentors they were more more senior members of the department and uh, and I can remember sharing um, some of the things that were occurring with them, and and uh, two uh, very clear uh, curiosity and interest and enthusiasm, and uh, they were always very supportive as I undertook to pursue this path uh, uh, more into more depth of investigation. Um, and it is admittedly a very polarizing topic. And in the department, it literally split. Uh, well, it it uh, it evolved extremes. Let's put it that way, because uh, it, yeah, I don't know. I guess it is fair because there were there were votes <laughs> when it came to bids for promotion and so forth. And in those votes, it was almost a 50-50 split uh, within the department. You know, yay or nay. And, uh, but obviously there are very vocal elements at the extremes, whereas most of the faculty, as good faculty usually are, they're very busy with their own plate and they um, aren't so overly concerned about what you're doing unless it particularly interests them. And that, and so the very positive interest was represented those types of people, whereas the very negative elements they saw me as an embarrassment. They saw me as a bane on the reputation of the department and the university and, and so forth and so forth. So, um, 
yeah, it was, you know, it was, <laughs> it was what it was. I hate to <clears throat> spend too much time. It seems like frequently in these conversations, we, uh, we, uh, come upon that thread and and i i uh, i hate to pull on it too too frequently because it while, while i think it's very important and i think it's a story that needs to be told because it does reveal i mean this is it's it's like when <laughs> you know when you read uh, an article in the newspaper about a topic that you know a lot about or about yourself and you see how sometimes so it, you're represented or, or the topic is represented in such a skewed, such a, a misrepresented sure. way, then you become very leery about trusting anything that's written in the newspaper about any topic. How, I, how far off are they on those things? You know, how much can you rely on that, uh, on that source? And so um, the experience that I've had with this topic in as Dr. Krantz would call it, the scientific establishment has been a real eye opener. And it has uh, reiterated some things that I've, you know, suspected. Human paleoanthropology is a very political, politically charged area. And uh, it's always had that reputation. Very um, uh, dynamic personalities involved, it seems, but and very limited uh, until until uh, the uh, you know recent rapid accumulation of lots and lots of fossils, there was always a very few points of uh, departure for for uh, meaningful conversations about the the nature and um, pattern of human evolution. Well, but it also, uh, but it also you know, um, yet yet I hate to become cynical, and I and I've resisted that vigorously as I've gotten older. With with age comes this. Uh, retrospective point of view and and a much broader uh, depth, a broader and deeper um, spectrum of experience, and and you come to realize that there's there's a lot of nonsense that goes on. There's a lot of very vacuous uh, expressions uh, of of ignorance on on a lot of topics, and uh, it's like wow. Is that, you know, I, you, you hope you've made a meaningful con a contribution yourself and have furthered the, 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 uh, the pursuit of truth and, and uh, the realization of reality. Um, but boy, it's, um, it's a challenge. <laughs> it's a challenge. I'm just well, leaving it there. So it's a story to be told. But I just wanted to say that there's always this, uh, the flip side. There are so many very positive things that have come out of my involvement in spite of the negative. There are so many collaborations, so many interactions with people, you know, like uh, ha having Jane Goodall make a right. statement that that appears on the cover of, of your book. That's, that's a pretty amazing uh, and even perhaps more valuable to me is the, the foreword to my book written by none other than George Schaller, who might not have the name recognition as generally outside of the science, but I mean, within, within science, he's the naturalist's naturalist, you know, he's, he's the uh, naturalist of our century in many ways. And, um, you know, there've been those kind of things. And then all the interactions and collaborations that have occurred largely behind the scenes 
because uh, there have been very few people who have gone out on the proverbial limb to the degree that I have, especially at, at, at the point of my career that I did, um, most sort of uh, uh, linger in the closet until retirement, and then they come out ready to go full guns only to suffer a heart attack or contract cancer or some other terrible malady that takes them out of the out of the uh, game uh, before the plays even begun for them. So that's all. So take home messages. Don't retire. Right. <laughs> Keep <laughs> at it. <laughs> pursue those interests as soon as you can. The how is how, from your perspective, just anecdotally, well, yeah. not even just anecdotally, you get a lot of <clears throat> reports and how is increase how has interest in this topic increased or even decreased in the last few years, specifically during the global pandemic? And I guess sort of the parenthetical to that is certainly there's an, uh, I have noticed an increase in the commercialization of things with Bigfoot slapped all over it. And maybe not a ton of shows out there about Sasquatch, but there's a handful of them. Um, yeah, so how has interest increased, decreased in, in, in this pandemic sure. time? Yeah, well, I, I don't have, I have only a very subjective, perhaps, impression of that. But but like you, you know, I've, I've noticed the proliferation of of documentaries and, and uh, podcasts. I think in the pandemic, people really discovered the uh, ability to... Um, Put their own message out, their own spin on the topic out, and so those have proliferated. I, I mean, there were, there were months during the pandemic when I was doing it. I mean, I finally learned to say no or to put it off a little bit. I was doing four or five podcasts, or and not just podcasts, but, um, but other institutions also discovered the, the utility of Zoom, and so I was doing uh, lectures at in university classrooms, grade school classrooms, high school science classrooms, library events, you know, museum events. It was just amazing how uh, the uh, quantity, and that was great. I mean, and, and the the networks, the cable networks have always had their finger on that pulse. And this is, you know, it's been told to me numerous times by producers, this is an evergreen topic. People are just fascinated. I mean, my own, um, uh, the uh, uh, documentary upon that inspired my book <clears throat> was a case in point, and that was years ago. <clears throat> Pardon me, but um, the documentary Sasquatch Legend Meets Science was due to to be airing shortly, and the Wallace story broke. The notion that all these footprints were made by these carved wooden stompers by the Wallace. Ray Wallace. Yeah, Ray Wallace and his clan traipsing around in the forest. Even just for context that uh, Wallace even claimed to have some involvement tangentially, but some involvement with the Patterson-Gimlin footage. And yeah, and and then he died in 2002, but his family claimed that they even had a hand in, in helping create these tracks, which absolutely, yeah, and and they were they were laying claim to having made all of or the the bulk at least all of the tracks. I mean, they they allowed there were probably some copycats out there, but but they they had invented Sask or Bigfoot, and and in fact they even got to the point where they were asserting that indeed it was 
their mother, the matriarch, uh, Mrs. Uh, uh, Ray Wallace, in the costume on the Patterson Gim Gimlin film. That all, she indeed is Patty. Yes, all five foot two inches of her. Right. <laughs> and so uh, anyway, that story broke in its initial iterations and then went uh, you know around the globe like the telegraph game <clears throat> party game and it with each retelling getting more elaborate and more more uh, extravagant the the uh, person in charge of, of uh, publicity and public relations at discovery was so chagrined by this so concerned that they were going to look like they had egg on their face that here they had this big uh, documentary, high-powered documentary, that now had been shown to be about something that was totally fake. He pulled all the publicity. He did everything short of lobbying for the cancellation of the airing of the show. And yet, when it aired, it took in the largest viewer segment in the history of that network, just by word of mouth, without any expense for publicity. I mean, they should learn something from that, perhaps, huh? But uh, it's the case, it seems over and over again, that uh, there's just so much interest in, in the topic that, um, yeah, and, and for good and ill. I mean, that and uh, the ability to self-publish books now, we've seen this plethora of, of self-published books, which is, uh, can be a boon or a bane, depending on the, on the individual examples. I mean, uh, some are great, some are fantastic little regional uh, synopses of events in a particular area, which I find very useful and very informative. But others are, are uh, you know, quilted hodgepodges of, of everything else that had already been published, just re-packaged, re and others could really use a proofreader and editor. <laughs> well, uh, and you also, it seems like you're in a challenging situation because you're both trying to conduct serious research and and elicit serious consideration for this research and for the existence of this species but you also even though it's not solely on your shoulders as a member of this this community for better or worse you're also having to be in a situation of combating hoaxes and the incorrect information, the people that are trying to peddle, actively peddle the incorrect information. So I guess that with that said, with is there are there some popular stories or anecdotes or even kind of notions about these creatures that you would like to dispel to see go away that just retire? entirely so maybe characteristics or even so-called popular um stories right. of these sightings that you would like to see go away yeah that's a good question and i you know i would be hesitant to uh presume to sort of sit here in uh, as the the final arbiter for for that kind of a that kind of a question but rather i think promote I mean this this is a maybe a good opportunity to um, to push a theme that I have given a lot more attention to recently and that is uh, to cultivate good practices of objective investigation 
um, the notion of citizen science, people who are not uh, formally trained or credentialed in a scientific uh, discipline, but yet are, you know, have, have <laughs> to put it bluntly, common sense about uh, the world around them and, and a curiosity that they can discipline according to some of the, the methodological approaches and, and strictures and, and uh, expectations, responsibilities of, uh, of science. And uh, we've even gone so far in the recent reorganization of the editorial board of the Relic Hominoid Inquiry to add a representative <clears throat> of citizen science, an editor, you know, a non-academic, and it will be her role to uh, help to foster uh, submissions of uh, individuals conducting their own research, work with them, help them to uh, try to uh, meet the expectations of standards of, of uh, objectivity and, and rigor in order to have a meaning, make a meaningful contribution. Because, you know, so much of this is, um, you know, you look at, at the sightings, the encounters, the reported encounters, the, the bulk of those that are credible, at least, that have perhaps some corroboration, uh, they happen by chance. They don't happen through intent. There's very few people like myself who in, go out and, uh, I mean, I mean there, there are lots of people like myself that go out, but there are few people amongst those that do go out intentionally that have legitimate experiences or to find real bona fide evidence unless you put in a lot of time and are very uh, systematic and methodical in your approach to to the science it uh, you know these people who go out these weekend warriors who go out and have activity on a weekly basis you know which usually boils down to bumps in the night or inexplicable tree structures or glyphs on the ground a cluster of twigs or this or that things that are very questionable which then through repetition become somehow affixed associated as evidence of Sasquatch activity and it gives them the opportunity to have that affirmative experience which otherwise is so remarkably rare that uh, you know it uh, I can't think of a good metaphor, panning for gold or, or it, whatever, catching that, that trophy fish or something. That, yeah. You know, it just doesn't happen much. But it's tricky, I find, in my opinion, is that, I and I, I see what you're saying, The it's a rare situation, a rare interaction, so if you're having the weekend warriors go out and then they present the bumps and the knocks and say, I had an experience, yeah, I, I don't want to, it, it's... I don't want to affirm that, but I also don't want to dismiss it because right. if on some level this now has further spurred some sort of interest and openness yeah. to the right. topic, then that could be a positive thing. However, we right. also don't need more Facebook scientists out there claiming that, okay, now I'm a cryptozoologist because I've watched a lot of TV shows and I've gone camping and hunting for Bigfoot. I, I, I don't quite know what that balance is there. I mean, right. are there any, you know, 
any, I mean, react to that, but also give me some yeah. bullet points of what you would say uh, to Joe Q public on, you know, if they're going to look at this footage, things to think about, things right. to questions to ask, whether it's YouTube videos or something that they're experiencing themselves in the woods. Right. Well, and exactly. And, I, and you hit right on the point uh, and, and said it more succinctly, precisely than perhaps I did at the beginning, but by, by, by demurring from be, be you know setting myself as, up as the arbiter, you know while I'm very critical and I hold to a very high standard, claims for example of the paranormal as opposed to the normal, a normal explanation. Uh, but it's it's like you know what is paranormal? What we call labeled paranormal today is is simply perhaps what we just don't understand. <laughs> we don't have. Uh, the uh, empirical basis to to accommodate it in our normal worldview yet but we could we could name off things which 50 100 150 years ago would seem outrageously paranormal other than not currently defined by science exactly outside of our normal of experience so anyway so i but but here's the thing and this is where you know as an educator i've i uh, I, I try not to too often step up on my soapbox, but one of my pet peeves has often been, and I try to convey this to students because it's so abused, and it's so abused in um, in this arena, particularly it seems. But it's Occam's razor. What people know as Occam's razor, that which is often misstated as the simplest explanation is most likely the true, the correct one. And that's not at all what Occam's razor is about. Occam uh, was a philosopher of science, and the original expression is, was basically uh, paraphrasing it uh, in, in a loose translation: is one should one is not justified, or one should not unnecessarily multiply factors in an explanation, because what he was getting at in in the uh, uh, fundamentally in the philosophical approach to, to science. It's, in, it's recognized that it's impossible for us to test every possible condition, every possible variation. And so instead of trying to prove everything positively, if we can demonstrate a single exception, that knocks the legs out from underneath our hypothesis, or at least uh, draws our hypothesis into reconsideration. And then we're justified to elaborate, to try to accommodate, to explain why this exception exists. And so <clears throat> it never was intended to bias opinion about the complexity of explanations toward this toward simplicity. Because if anything, nature teaches us, especially biology, is that most explanations are far from simple. You know, Mother Nature doesn't have a, a crystal ball, so doesn't possibly know what the straightest line between two points is. And so that the, the path when viewed with 2020 hindsight is this meandering, um, wandering path um, uh, that varies with the current circumstances at the moment. But, the old, but where we end up with in our future present um, is, is unknowable. So anyway, the point being, um, when approaching this topic, then, not to say that the simplest explanation is most likely to be true, but if I can accommodate 
my observations within a simple explanation, I'm obliged to hold on to that explanation rather than appeal to or resort to a much more elaborate, convoluted explanation until such time as I experience exceptions that seem to disqualify that simplistic view of, of it. And, and from my point of view as a physical anthropologist, I can accommodate the experiences that I have had at least within a concept of a biological species of large bipedal primate, whether a hominoid, an ape, or an early hominin like a paranthropus or something like that. Nothing that I've experienced would justify me leaping to the explanation, uh, say, uh, or to the conclusion that, say, since I found no bodies, they must not reside here. They must be coming from another dimension or stepping out of a UFO or this or that or the other. I've never seen a Bigfoot walk along and suddenly transform into an orb of light and bounce off into the forest. You know, I've just, I've, I'm not saying that others haven't, but I, but then the burden is on them to demonstrate that evidence, that observation through documentation and replication and so forth. In other words, if we're going to hold it up to a science, to, if, you know, if they, you can't have your cake and eat it too. In other words, you can't defy the, the norms of science, but then expect science to take you seriously and respect the, the assertions that you're making. You're going to have to adhere to the expectations, the requirements of science if you want a science, science to endorse it. And there are those who just throw up their hands and say, oh, well, I couldn't care less what science thinks. I've had my experience. I know what I know but yet they want everyone else to believe <laughs> that what they know is, is in fact reality it's, when uh, <laughs> it's a personal experience, a personal subjective interpretation of their supposed experience. It's gotten a lot, right. a lot it's, more complicated uh, in the last couple of years too, I would say, not just for this topic, but just everything. But yeah, well, it's, you're, you're absolutely right. But it's, um, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a minefield because you're, you know, you're always, you're always dancing around this uh, uh, this possibility that well you, you know the first step that you're then required to take is to try to evaluate what are the prospects that this is simply a hoax. I mean, not jump to that conclusion, but you have to be able to eliminate you know that possibility because in some instances that is the simplest explanation, <laughs> and so you got to start there, and before you can leave that, you have to demonstrate why this couldn't be simply a hoax then what is it yeah yeah and and <clears throat> it's like i think even for people that want to believe and are on the side of yeah this this is quite possibly out there even when they see something because we're ingrained to be not even just skeptical skepticism is, can be a good thing but cynical sure. that even the people that are on the side are like nope it's a hoax and it's like, right. well, well, give it a give it a second here. Let's sure. let's evaluate this a little bit. I, I sometimes find the people that are the so called believers are yeah. the hardest to convince. Yeah, and, that's true. That's true. Uh, that's true. And uh, yeah, whether that's based on a a sense of uh, of personal knowledge that they've acquired that they that has given them uh, some some insight that that the average person may not 
uh, they think the average person doesn't have. I mean, basically, it comes back to this obligation of, of establishing a set of criteria, and uh, and you know, and whether that's a foolproof proof method or not. There are some people out there online, and I won't name names, but there are some people out there online who are very good at that. They establish a a, a set of criteria. There was. There was, well, I'll name one that because it goes back and it's not anybody that's out there that I'm aware of right now. I haven't had any inter interaction with, but um, there was this Facebook Find Bigfoot site, which for a long time uh, welcomed submission of of uh, videos. And I must say, it was <clears throat> you know it was, it was interesting to see the spectrum of quality of a video. But to their credit. Um, whether it was, like I said, foolproof or not, they they quickly is kind of established a set of criteria what uh, that formed a basis for evaluating and ranking the, the possibility of these being credible pieces of video or photographic uh, imagery, and and uh, you know it, it was it 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 also became clear quickly that that uh, these weren't all on par. The quality, the amount of information, content, and so forth, varied tremendously. But and and it was interesting. He would uh, he would rank uh, them according to this um, uh, evolving criteria, set of criteria, and uh, his top twenty. When you went and looked at his top twenty, no one of them. I mean, and and you know, the thing about this is the Patrick Gimlin film has set the bar so ridiculously high for all these others that they, they fall so re remarkably short. But um, any one of them, as I said, was not that impressive. But when you started to see them in series and there were repetitive little pieces where, you know, these various criteria would show up time and time again, whether it was the posture of the head on the shoulders, you know, the massive traps, whether it was the way the hand was carried, uh, the way the high lift, the angle of the of the shin, the tibia, um, you know, these all these little little things like that, both anatomical and behavioral um, and circumstantial, that it started in 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 uh, total in its totality, it it started to make a really compelling case that hey, there's something for which there is some consistency that keeps floating to the surface in so many of these, that there must be something out there. So many of them were just again, by happenstance. They weren't intentionally videoing a, a Sasquatch. They were videoing, you know, the barbecue in the backyard or the, the cabin. And then on the ridge line or behind the tree steps, a Sasquatch photobombing them. Yeah. And I, it, you know, honestly, I've, I've seen a lot of videos and the, yeah, the happenstance ones and, and how people react and how the rest of the environment mm -hmm. seems to be reacting. That's the stuff that I find compelling doesn't necessarily automatically make it the winner, but it makes it compelling right. to me. I mean, so far right now, and, and I want to keep you for a few more minutes if I can, but the, you know, it seems like the, the Skookum cast from 2000, that's got, we've got footprints. We've got, looks like a, a, a buttocks, thigh print. It's, it's, there's as if this, this creature is uh, leaning down and, and picking something. So we have that. And then we have Patterson Gimlin as two pretty high marks. Are there other pretty are there other benchmark casts or video footage 
that you wish more people could know about? I mean, call them out right here. Sure. Oh, sure. Well, uh, recently, um, one of the uh, members of the staff out at the North American Bigfoot Center, Cliff, Cliff Berkman's uh, museum, Connor, um, is uh, has done some really great stuff with the Freeman footage, which is featured in Sasquatch Legend Meets Science. is is up there, I think, pretty close. I mean, it's I mean, it's on it's video, and so the quality, the image content is 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 less. But Connor has done some interesting things, delacing the 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 fields, and and uh, they went up and and were actually able to very uh, conclusively determine the look the exact location I mean even reproducing the footsteps <laughs> you know the footfalls and the distance between steps with the actual scale then established and and uh, it's impressive I mean it, it stood probably just a little over six and a half feet tall um, and uh, not not towering up there at seven seven and a half feet which accords well with the, the footprints which are very similar in size and proportion to Patty's, and that's about the size that Patty seems to be coming in at, right between six and a half and seven feet, somewhere in there. So the the uh, redwoods or the um, I'm sorry the the Freeman footage is is one that I think will now get some renewed attention through um, the analysis that Connor's um, leading. Um, I mean there there are so many examples of footprints, and and I think it'll be really interesting. Um, in that same, from that same uh, uh, region, uh, Mike Freeman, Michael Freeman, uh, Paul Freeman's son is, uh, it should be out if it's not now uh, already, should be out shortly, has put together uh, with some help from Doug Hycheck and contributions from a number of other people providing some historical context, some, some never before seen images of some of the footprint casts and some of the historical aspects of uh, of Paul Freeman's uh, you know decade long investigation. That stuff still ranks up there, despite uh, detracting comments by a number of naysayers, as uh, some of the most significant evidence. There were just I mean people need to realize when they look at the at the um, you know King Midas appearing quantity of data that Paul was was just a dogged investigator every spare moment and even moments he didn't have to spare from his family and job he was up there in the woods in an area where the conditions were remarkably unique in a way in many ways in that the uh, the local soil content of this glacial lust this this uh, it's sometimes called glacial flour it's like flour in consistency the sediment is so fine and and many of these tertiary roads that were cut into the mountains there were nothing more than graded roads dirt roads there was no improvement no gravel beds whatever and so these the potential for and and then the uh, uh the cultivated lands they cultivated right up to the national forest boundary so there are always seasonally these fallow fields with tilled soil soft soil that would take footprints really well and uh, and so Paul and others Paul wasn't the discoverer in every case sometimes he was informed by other people once once he had some notoriety as a result of his first uh, 
first encounter and the publicity associated with that. Um, but this is an area that has yielded remarkable, a remarkable footprint record with repeat appearances of, of uh, recognizable individuals. The, the first documented and published uh, consideration of dermatoglyphics, which in, is in part a result of the very fine soil substrate, um, material that's been studied, looked at, examined, including hair samples, by more PhDs than in any other location. Wow. Dr. Fehrenbach, Dr. Krantz, myself, Leroy Fish, there were other, I mean, he's not a PhD, but he was a professional wildlife biologist and um, other, other people uh, that uh, have visited that site or have, uh, have looked at the materials. Dr. John Bindernagel, you know, who spent a couple days in my laboratory going over these footprint casts in great detail and so forth. So yeah, there's, there's still lots of, I mean, there's lots and lots of evidence. Well, I have a, I have an academic question. Well, actually, I have a question about, first off, the government involvement. And, and it sounds like I'm about to ask a crackpot conspiracy theorist question, but I'm not. Because I was going to say, do you think the government has actively studied this matter and simply hasn't been forthcoming about it? We know that in 1969, I believe, I think it was a Smithsonian reached out to Jagger Hoover to investigate the Hansen Iceman and and he declined according to what we know. Huh. So so do you think the government has actively studied this matter and just simply hasn't been forthcoming because we now know that even when they said that they were not looking into UFO/UAP they were. Yeah, yeah, that kind of changed the landscape, didn't it? Right. And and, and on on that basis uh and, and so many other examples uh, similar to that, I think uh, it would be naive to say that, that, that it's impossible that there has been uh, that there has been no government involvement. My own personal experience, and I, that you know that's what I can think, speak from with authority, is that um, the only uh, the only anecdotes I could share are those that involve sort of middle management personnel who are motivated um, usually out of either uh, concern for personal reputation. They don't want their, the, the, you know, this scandal to take place on their watch or fiscal <laughs> responsibility, integrity, their concern, well, or, or at least I guess it's still under the first category. It's more out of concern for public perception of the of the application of, of public funds, chasing wild geese, you know, um, and and so it's uh, those have been the motivations where obstacles have been put in the path of any type of institutional involvement. Um, you know, John Mainzinski that I've worked with very closely. Uh, has shared repeatedly his experience, and it, it involves that, not upper level, um, along the same lines. John has interacted with people uh, who, employees of the, the National Park Service at Yellowstone, who have had experiences, and some have published some of their experiences, and become, um, they, they have become widely known, but it's interesting, uh, and, the, and they were uh, always talked about the reticence, the reluctance to uh, report, formally report these experiences 
uh, or encounters for fear of retribution and, and or stigmatization and so forth. One time, John shared with me an experience. One time he was interacting with uh, the director of public relations at the uh, Yellowstone National Park. And as he's so skilled at doing, he has a knack for turning the conversation at, at, at a given point to this question to try to uh, fathom you know, their interest or their um, any knowledge nuggets of insight they might provide. Anyway, he was mentioning about um, his involvement in some of the research into the question of Sasquatch. And she says, oh, that's very interesting. You know, we, we don't have anything uh, happen like that here in the park. And he said, oh, as a matter of fact, you do. <laughs> she said, what? And he said, yeah, many of your rangers have experiences, but they don't feel at liberty to report them up the chain of command for fear of retribution. And she said, really? She was just totally oblivious. So, I mean, it shows that there, I think that there is this disconnect um, and, and it, it, it suggests to me that there isn't an orchestrated official policy that there are usually um, uh, examples of sort of middle management uh, uh, policy making by individuals concerned about their reputation, concerned about their career security and so forth. Uh, and I could, you know, repeat, there have been numerous examples of that kind of thing. You know, no men in black have shown up at my office and rifled through my files. No one's ever snuck into my lab and confiscated any evidence, any hair, footprints or anything. So, you know, I had a good laugh one time because <laughs> this came up, this type of question came up. Uh, we were in a panel um, at one of the uh, conventions. And so when the mic was handed to me, I said, well, I guess it's time I came clean. I'm actually a federal agent and I've been tasked with <laughs> dispersing disinformation to keep you all off the track of the, of the real origin <laughs> of the Sasquatch. Got a good laugh from the audience, but something well, to that effect. Well, what would, what would it take though for a, a New York Times level of interest s similar to what we have now seen with the UFO, yeah. UFO UAP topic and for this discussion to be treated with a newsy look, a serious look, legitimate coverage, what would that take? And is it anything short of a body, quite frankly? Well, sure. I mean, there's there's that side of it. If, if there was a precipitous development uh, providing conclusive evidence, then of course, you know, all, all bets are off then at that. And, um, but on the other hand, if it if it uh, is the continuation of this kind of glacial paced change in attitude, um, I think uh, just as we're seeing some glaciers kind of slip <laughs> as the melting takes place, um, there, there are it, it, it kind of I, boils down to uh, uh, Kuhn's statement, Kuhn who uh, who um, coined the term paradigm shift and made the point that sometimes, pardon me, sometimes it requires an entire generation to pass before a new paradigm can take root and totally displace, you know, old ways of thinking. Um, we just, I just did an interview for the Wall Street Journal and they produced, I, I was one of, of several people who were interviewed. It wasn't a, a feature on, on Dr. Meldrum, but it, um, it was a very uh, 
a very objective, open-minded treatment of the topic with acknowledgement that there are serious people, some with academic credentials, some with other professional credentials, some with just, you know, good common sense that are open-minded about the topic. That That's a that, that's a, a sign of, of the changing times. I just uh, fielded an email from a master student's a student in a well-established anthropology program doing field research in primatology. And uh, she introduced herself as an inquiring student who is fascinated by this topic and wants to learn more, wants to, and how can she get involved? And I've had other, I've had, I had a student, a brand, uh, we had a visiting assistant professor who had uh, taken her degree from a, a very well reputation a very strong anthropology program. Um, she was in forensic anthropology. Anyway, she was here visiting, uh, getting acquainted, look, seeing our anatomy suite. And then there was a lull in the conversation. She says, can I ask a geeky question? And I said, well, sure. Those are often the best ones. She reaches in her satchel and out comes a copy of my book. Would you autograph my book? It wasn't a, you know, pat yourself on the shoulder. It was a, yes, you know, here's a brand new assistant professor. She's still probably five years off from having tenure and some job security to really pursue academic freedom. You know, her, her interests under the, under the umbrella auspices of, of academic freedom, but she probably represents a lot of other newly minted PhDs that have interests that are not um, interests in this topic, that are not indoctrinated by the old paradigm that this is just tabloid, that there is, I mean, so much has changed. The, the, I like to say science has finally caught up with the topic because the context, if, you know, if, if, if Patterson had come forward with his film this year instead of in instead of 55 years ago, it would have been a completely different reception, a different story altogether, a different outcome. I mean, there's sure there still would have been skepticism and so on, um, and especially well, I mean, I'm I'm just speaking juxtaposing with the prevailing scientific context. I mean, juxtaposing against the current prevailing technical abilities to create <laughs> fake films, you know, fake, what, what is it called when they can create? For sure, CGI yeah. and, and just yeah. even practical effects advancements yeah. that were not yeah. available during uh, during uh, Patterson-Gimlin. Exactly. But if we could just switch the, the current anthropological understanding of the fossil record of hominin evolution, if we could put that back in 1967, uh, juxtaposed with the uh, limitations on all of those uh, uh, skills, technologies that would be used in faking a film like that, it, it would have been a very different um, conversation. Just to clarify what you're saying is that if Patterson-Gimlin had been released today, we might have more technological, uh, practical effects to have created a suit, but scientists, anthropologists uh, right. would have a stronger appreciation and place more of a serious eye on Absolutely. that footage. One of, one of the presentations, the prepared presentations that I, that I give, that I really enjoy sharing because it's so, it's so uh, uh, 
perception changing, I think, is, is considering the Patterson-Gimlin film with this 2020 hindsight, this retrospective, and, and really looking at how the film, so many aspects, so many combinations of uh, traits, you know, like the, the small brain, but, but the uh, bipedal limbs, um, which were stumbling blocks for some of the scientists, even the more op, uh, uh, um, open-minded like uh, John Napier, uh, they were, it was counterintuitive 55 years ago. It cut against the grain of, of the prevailing paradigms. But now in hindsight, we see that it, that all these different combinations of traits unexpectedly anticipated what we now understand. You know, even, even that one, just to illustrate that one, um, Napier in his book, which was one of the first academic treatments, I mean, other than Ivan Sanderson's academic treatments of the topic, uh, by a bona fide primatologist, physical anthropologist, uh, he still came down thumbs down on the Patterson-Gimlin film, but he, he acknowledged he couldn't really put his finger on anything except when he looked at the film, he said he saw uh, something that from the waist up looked essentially like an ape, but from the waist down was like a human. It was inconceivable to him that such a hybrid of structure would exist in nature. Well, just a few years later, that was in, I think, 72 that his book came out. A few years later, the public discussions about Lucy, Australopithecus afarensis. The first time we had uh, more uh, associated skeletal remains and we could see the pelvis, we could see the knee, we could see the cranium and the jaw and so forth. And how did they describe it in the public press? Isn't this interesting? From the waist up, she looks like a chimpanzee. But from the waist down, she looks like a human. Well, wait a minute. That was the linchpin in Napier's mind that prevented him from accepting what he saw on that screen as being legitimate. What if he had written that book, you know, five years later? Uh, yeah. What would the opinion have been at that time then? How would he have perceived of it? And it just, I mean, the list goes right down. Things that that back then they would, you know, the skeptics would look at and say, this is silly, you know, this, this, this is, is, uh, doesn't make any sense at all. Now it makes absolute sense. It's fascinating because it's in a way, and I, I you know, I use this word disclosure when I was chatting with you and in the, the promotional graphic, really just as a shortcut to say, what would it take for us to be seriously um, looking at this topic? But in a way we kind of had that disclosure 55 years ago and we had it too good and we just didn't really appreciate it right. and now there's been so much uh baggage uh right. placed on top of this footage that right. even hard. though you might look at it seriously there's still enough people that are like oh well but it was debunked and the guys came out as a hoax and another yeah. guy came out and said that he put the footprints and yeah and yeah. it's just gained this uh, detritus attached to it exactly it does and it just weighs it down it's it's hard to get that fresh, unadulterated look at it. Ooh, man. Yeah. Uh, finally, I, I'm just curious because because you have said this, and obviously because uh, you are a active academic, and you also additionally wrote a a a, a guide, uh, Dr. Meldrum's youth guide for exploring yeah. this topic. Just yeah. um, leave leave people with even if they are not necessarily able to 
go pursue a degree in this and higher education. Right. You know, let's face it. No one's let me let me preface this that I it somewhat frustrates me as someone that went into debt pursuing higher education. When I see people tossing around labels such as demonologists and cryptozoologists, uh, I, I'm a little bit peeved about that at times. But <laughs> how might a student or right. someone that is able to take classes pursue the study of Sasquatch academically and perhaps truly gain knowledge and maybe even contribute to the field. Right. Well, first I would say watch out for these fly-by-night online uh, degrees that uh, there's a, a couple out there that offer degrees in cryptozoology and, and uh, supposedly award um, higher, bona fide higher degrees, masters and PhDs, which don't have any of the rigor, any of the requirements of a of a of a legitimate uh, credentialed uh, institution. So watch out for that. I tell students that, uh, and especially to you know, look at my career, look at what I I uh, endured and survived by the skin of my teeth in some instances. And instead of diving into the deep end of the pool there. Um, I, I encourage students to, to choose. I mean, this has got to be a career. And so you can't make your career entirely on this topic. You need to, and, and you shouldn't, I think. I mean, you should bring to this topic skills and expertise that will help us to understand and to elucidate the question. And so, you know, choose an area that you find fascinating that that is um, related to or tangential to somehow this question, whether it's tracking, whether it's uh, DNA sequencing, whether it's uh, bioacoustics, um, wildlife biology, et cetera, et cetera. And then become the best that you can be in that discipline. Establish yourself, if you go into academia, you know, get tenure, get published, get recognized for your contributions based on your skills, and then when you have that job security, turn your uh, skills and interests to this question and approach it from a position of authority and respect, the respect of your colleagues. And um, I mean, I've had people say that, uh, actually say, well, you know, Meldrum has, he's done this, he's done that, he's made important contributions in the study of, uh, of hominid footprints and foot morphology. If he takes this serious, maybe there is something to it. Maybe I should look at it more closely. Anyway, and that, so I think that's the way that, that you do it. And, um, and, and we, I think as we, um, as we try to uh, cultivate this notion of citizen science too, that there, I mean, there, there are these, like you say, some different pathways. You don't necessarily have to be a, uh, uh, possess the, you know, those, those letters behind your name, a degree to do good science. You can, uh, I mean, I've worked with lots of people who are, are, are largely self-taught, who are very insightful, very rational and objective in their, in their interpretation of their experiences and the evidence they encounter and so forth. And they bring, uh, that's why I always hate to use the word amateur for a quote, non-professional uh, investigator. Uh, because 
they are uh, often highly skilled, much more so in some in some areas than I am, whether it's electronics or photography or tracking or you know you, you name it, they, they, they may bring remarkable skills and experience to the table and, and make very significant contributions. And though and so to also help at a younger age to really get the young uh, readers uh, uh, and uh, enthusiasts on the right path, I uh, launched a, a series um, for uh, age, well, if you can read, age eight, basically eight to adulthood. Originally, I was going to just, you know, make it for the, for the uh, uh, pre-high school um, age, but, uh, and, but the uh, result was so engaging. I came into contact with an artist that we just clicked, and uh, his technique I really, really uh, liked, and uh, 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 so I would compose these um, learning activity books that incorporated all kinds of science, uh, whether geography and biology and even ethnography. And, and uh, so there are maps, there are depictions of native peoples and their interpretation. So masks, ceremonial masks and different things like that. There, there are all sorts of learning activities. My wife is is a um, uh, K through 12 educator, uh, now retired, but so she helped me with the learning, the desired learning outcomes and what the standards were for the different ages, age groups and so forth. And so there's word searches, there's puzzles, there's all kinds of activities and of course places to color and draw your own experiences and, and whatnot. And just I had so much fun with the Sasquatch edition that before the artist was even done with the final composition, re redraw of, of my my rough composition, uh, he uh, I had the one for the Yeti already designed, and then we just kept the ball rolling, and and so there are uh, five editions to represent five of the potential relic hominoids from around the world. I even tackled the Yowie, which I've sometimes shied away from, but I I laid it out there as I see it, and. Uh, you know, for me, the biggest problem with the Yowie is, is exemplified on the page where there's about six different variations of feet, of footprints. Some with three toes, some with four toes, some with yeah. five toes, some that look like a kangaroo, some that look like an ape with a divergent toe sticking out. You know, it, there's just no consistency in the footprint fossil record or the footprint record of, uh, of the Yowie. And so that that is a real stumbling block for me. Uh, to, to get around because, um, you know, that trace evidence is, is uh, really, really significant in my mind. Uh, anyway. The problem with Yowie. Did, You'll have to look them up. They're I public. Do. Paradise K. Paradise K with a C, C-A-Y. That's so the publishing look, company. Publishing company. Parak.com. And uh, they've got quite a selection, if you've not visited their webpage, of all sorts of Bigfoot-related topics. They've really gotten into the genre. And uh, in addition to all their other, they specialize in field guides and, and uh, ocean maps and so forth. They're uh, located over on the California coast. And uh, Bigfoot has become a, a, big, a big element of their uh, offerings. And uh, my books feature in there as well. I will most certainly have to check it out. And, sir, 
Uh, I appreciate your time. Uh, this is Dr. Jeff Meldrum. He's a full professor of anatomy and anthropology at Idaho State University. His research centers on the evolution of hominin bipedalism, of course. We're talking about Bigfoot. Not just Bigfoot, but uh, relic hominoids. So, uh, Jeff, it was truly just such a pleasure speaking with you. And I could keep this going, but I will I will relinquish your time back to you, sir. Any time whatsoever you want to come nerd out and talk about this topic, uh, you let me know. I am totally down for it. Will do. All right. Thank you right. very much. Thank you, Jeff. Talking Strange is a part of the Den of Geek Network, available wherever you listen to other podcasts. If you like what we're doing, share Talking Strange with your friends and fellow spooky nerds. And please, subscribe, rate, and leave a nice review. If you have a strange or paranormal story you would like to share with us, please email talkingstrange at denofgeek.com for a chance to have it read on a future episode. For video episodes of Talking Strange, check out twitch.tv slash denofgeektv and youtube.com slash denofgeekus. And please follow at TalkStrangePod on Twitter and at Aaron Sagers on Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon for more paranormal pop culture content. Mm -hmm.